Hello, and welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti, and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded at the California State Bar offices here in San Francisco, California. I have a huge panel of guests here, and so I've got eight people uh, total, including myself, uh, part of this panel discussion. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn to my left, and we're going to go clockwise. And so I'm going to turn to my left and say hello to Tara Bird. Welcome to the show. Hello. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to turn next to Kevin Moore. Welcome to the show. How do? And return guest, uh, we got Andrew Aruda also joining us today. Howdy. And then we have Joanna. Joanna, what's your last name? Mendoza. Mendoza. Are you first time Legal Talk Network guest here today? I am. I am. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then Dan Lina, he's one of our hosts. He has joined us over here. He's staring at me strangely. So uh, welcome to the show, sir. <laughs> That's my normal look, Lawrence. Hey, Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> and then next day, we've got Alan Rodriguez. Welcome to the show. Welcome, thank you. Love and we have here. the uh, newly minted Ralph Baxter, who just became a host on this trip in San Francisco. Sir, welcome. Glad to be here. All right, so we are here to cover a pretty important event. So I've been getting an earful of this for quite some time. And so this is the task force on access through innovation of legal services. And I understand that we have a lot of volunteers here. And then we have some some folks that came in just like me to observe the uh, the hearing today, the public hearing, where we got a lot of commentary. And so what I want to do here, before we do that, I want to just give our listeners some context as to the expertise in the room. want to get your bio. So let's start with the same order we did introductions. Tara Bird. Hi, I'm a probate litigation attorney in San Diego, and I'm part of the California Lawyers Association leadership. I will be the co-chair of the Real Property Law section next year, and I'm also involved in the Marketing and Communications Committee. Excellent. Kevin Moore. I'm a professor at Western State College of Law in Irvine, California. I'm the recently retired reporter consultant to the California Rules Revision Commission that recently recommended uh, the rules that were adopted by the California Supreme Court. And I am a member of the task force. Andrew Arruda. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Andrew Arruda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Ross Intelligence. And I also serve on the board of IELTS, the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System. And I also work with APRIL, uh, the uh, Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers as well. Joanna Mendoza. Yes, I'm Joanna Mendoza. I'm a solo practitioner from near Sacramento. I'm on the board of trustees of the state bar. I'm just finishing my sixth and final year on the board and uh, a member of the task force, the assembly appointee member of the task force. And Dan Lina. Hi, Lawrence. I'm the Director of Law and Technology Initiatives and a Senior Lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law and the, also the McCormick School of Engineering. I'm affiliated faculty at Codex, the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics, and I'm a co-founder and the Director of Curriculum at the Institute for the Future of Law Practice. And you host for which show? And I host for the Legal Talk Network, the Law Technology Show, Law Ac- Technology Today Show. Excellent. Alan Rodriguez. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of 1400. I'm also a board member of the Group Legal Services Association. Uh, I, uh, I'm an advisor to several legal technology companies. Um, and then finally, a speaker on the topics of uh, future of legal services and technology. Ralph Baxter. And I'm Ralph Baxter. I'm an independent agent. I do a number of things, including serve on boards of legal technology companies and advise law firms, law schools, and uh, corporate legal departments. And I'm here today because I testified at the hearing. And you're the host for which show? Oh, Law Technology Now. Thank you, gentlemen, for those shameless plugs. 
<laughs> so we have an opening question here. So I want to get a little bit of a uh, sense of the history of how this task force came together and what the goals were. And so I'm going to turn to Joanna for the history part. Yeah, and I, I may be going back slightly further than you were expecting, only because it's important for context that uh, a few years back, the California State Bar separated its trade association function away from its regulatory function. So we're no longer a unified bar. That was really critical because um, it helped the bar focus on its public protection mission and not have the conflict of interest who we were protecting. That allowed the board of trustees to refocus on the public protection aspect and also focus on the access to justice issues in a way they'd never really been focused on before. And a, coming out of that was a concern that we weren't addressing it properly. We asked Professor uh, William Henderson to put a report together for us that helped present the context of the problem and how we might want to be addressing it and suggested that we put this task force together and the board unanimously agreed we needed to do this and take a look at these issues. And we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a bunch of lawyers making these decisions. So we made sure that it was a majority of allied professionals that were not lawyers on the, on the task force to help participate in the recommendations. So in terms of next steps, I understand there's a bit of a parliamentary procedure going on here. So we had a hearing today, and I know that you've been hearing some comments here. So I want to turn to Kevin to kind of tell us from the time that these suggestions were made for the changes to the comments to where we are today, and then going forward, what's the parliamentary procedure? Uh, the parliamentary procedure uh, is we're going to take into consideration all of the public comments who have received, not just the written public comments that have been submitted to the bar's website, but also the comments that were made today at the public hearing, the town hall. Uh, we will take those into consideration and see if they will affect our recommendations, which, as everyone has recognized, for the most part, are pretty general. They're generalized recommendations because I think what the task force is attempting to do is to create a framework for going forward. Once the task force has issued its final report for consideration by the Board of Trustees, it will go to the Board of Trustees for approval, uh, at which point it would then be submitted to the California Supreme Court. Uh, at that point, the task force's work will pretty much be over. There will probably need to be a separate task force which will be charged with implementing any of the recommendations that the Supreme Court has approved at that point. Uh, I believe that because in California we have this unique dual regulatory system where the legislature is actively involved in regulating lawyers in addition to the Supreme Court of California, we're going to also have to get the legislature involved. Uh, and we do have past uh, experience with this. We had a task force that uh, put together Rule 3100, uh, which eventually became Rule 1.6 on confidentiality, and all three branches of the government were involved in that task force. And that's what we'll probably eventually see, but it will be an implementation task force that will put into effect the framework that's been developed by this task force. So just roughly speaking, what's the timeline that, that, that you are looking at right now? The timeline, I can give you the timeline for this task force the end of the year. That's a hard date. As far as implementing 
we're going to have to take our guidance from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will tell us uh, which particular uh, proposals they want to advance quickly. I think they will prioritize which proposals should move forward quickly, uh, and we will follow the direction of the Supreme Court. So I want to involve some more members of the panel here, and I think this is important just for the, the listener's sake, is maybe to talk about the the, uh, the proposals that you've laid forward. So I look quickly at the uh, paperwork that you guys submitted, and it looks like it centers around, uh, at least from what I could tell, un, unauthorized practice of law. There was a section about fee sharing. There was uh, non-lawyers owning a legal practice. And then, the, of course, there was a section about advertising and solicitation. So I, I guess maybe we could uh, maybe bite off the uh, the unauthorized practice of law. Who feels familiar with that with that proposal? Well, I'll I'll <laughs> mention uh, something about it. Not going into the the legal specifics. I, I will say one of the things that we're trying to accomplish is increase overall access to justice. Uh, actually, Andrew Ruda and I were were talking. Uh, they were telling. I was telling him a story. Um, I recently had to go into the veterans office um, to get some information. Basically, get that ten percent discount in California for museum entrances. <laughs> get a veterans label on your on your state ID now. And while I was there, um, I was made aware by a non-lawyer of certain rights and benefits that were owed to me as a, uh, a member of the service uh, when during the Gulf War. Um, and I was also made aware of certain disability benefits that were uh, owed to me as a participation in my service. All of this happened by somebody who was not a lawyer, um, who, who didn't, you know, uh, have a background in, in, in that sort of information, but was just a fellow veteran who's been trained in the service. So it's an example of what we're trying to accomplish overall with, the, uh, with addressing UPL. So I think it's important to go back to the history and really make clear what the problem is. And the problem is that the reports show that we have up to possibly 85% of Americans, I believe it was, that don't have access to justice. And so there's a huge failure for us to get information out, uh, just like Alan was saying. And attorneys can't disseminate the information all alone, and that's not their job. And so we need to find other ways to get information to the people that need it, those that can afford it, and those that can't. And something that really um, struck me as interesting was that uh, most people do not seek legal services, not because of the money, but because they don't know that they have a legal problem. And so we have to educate people on what is a legal problem, where are the resources to solve that, and then we can work out the money thing. And some of that is financial, but uh, not all of it. So we have to work on all of those various issues. Yeah, the way I look at it is um, I, I come at this looking at it from almost a kind of business of law perspective, and I feel like law has a marketing problem. And that marketing problem is that most folks who have legal issues don't even know they have it. And part of what we're trying to encourage is what does the structure look like and what kind of allied professionals and you know, how does the delivery of law look like when start to finish you may interact with individuals who are licensed to practice and per participate and do certain tasks that are different than what you see just a lawyer right now being able to do. And I think if you look at other professions, um, look, uh, you know, in medicine and in finance, um, you know, that that's that's worked for them. And a lot of the time we hear how important it is for people to get proper legal representation. And obviously we have a duty to protect the public. But, you know, I, I think if, if you go to a, a hospital, if you go into even a dentist, et cetera, there are people with different uh, qualifications and they play a role in the, in the delivery of that service. And I think that law shouldn't be different. And I think that's what we're hearing as a task force as well. 
Well, so this is a great job of setting the table on on, on the problem and and starting to get into uh, some of the, the obstacles that we have in the industry. I wonder if we can just step through the recommendations just to be clear about. So what is it that is being recommended around UPL and each of the other issues? I'll, I'll take that. The, um, the issue with the UPL statutes in California, the unauthorized practice of law statutes, uh, is more that it prevents people from wanting to engage in innovative ideas because of fear of being charged with the unauthorized practice of law. And so because it hinders innovation and it prevents people from going out there providing services as it currently stands, we need to find other exceptions to the UPL statute to open up innovation, investment, and so forth to really bring us uh, more legal services. And I'd like to add that, in fact, the current state of the rules is um, causing more damage. So let's say, for example, somebody wants to go online and consumers have already spoken. They go online, they want to consume legal services online. They go online to fill out a simple will. If If you come to the field where hey, what are your gross revenues? And you input a million dollars, the software should tell you, whoa, stop. You know, that's, you need to consider maybe a, a living trust or some, some other instrument that might be more appropriate for that. If the software actually does that without recommending an attorney, that could be considered UPL. So the software just allows people to go through and that's bad. Yeah, I think, um, you know, building on Dan's question around what other things you're hearing, you're seeing things around UPL, so unlicensed practice of law, relaxing that in a way to ensure that uh, you can have better delivery of legal services. We also are looking at advertising rules, um, redefining them to ensure that if uh, non-lawyers, uh, which I hate the fact that I, I use that term, um, <laughs> are involved, uh, that they, they won't uh, be kind of uh, uh, trapped in any of those rules. We're also looking at uh, duty uh, uh, to have a tech competency um, within the state of California to ensure that those who are in practice and those who are delivering legal services in general um, are aware of uh, technologies that can be used uh, to streamline their practice and to deliver high-quality uh, legal representation. So we looked at the entire um, kind of gambit of issues in terms of what's preventing access to justice. Um, we defined access to justice, which I think is also um, different that it deserves to be highlighted, as uh, f- entities that would be involved in this new schema would be for-profit, as well as not-for-profit, um, recognizing the fact that uh, middle-class um, uh, um, Americans um, are also being priced out due to the way that legal services are being delivered. So that, Dan, I think provides a, a bit of kind of an overview, and certainly not in-depth, but um, the California bar does have a lot of this material online. And if you're listening to this out there and wondering, hey, I want to know what they're up to, please do hop on the website. There's some really fabulous stuff that uh, you'd love to read. So I think I agree that it, the, these recommendations are as they're being being presented. It's always struck me a little bit as a little bit odd that we think of this as UPL. I remember when I first confronted it, it, it people were talking about it as though there's burglary and there's murder and there's UPL. <laughs> in fact, what we are doing in in this regulation is we're limiting who can offer legal service to the public. And, and what we have done as a state is establish certain rules that govern the practice of law as we deliver legal service to the public. What I think everyone has found is that the way we are doing it is not any longer adequate, that we're go- being too narrow. But, but it isn't because we're dealing in what's criminal, what's not criminal. It's, it's we're looking at how do we best serve the interests of the people of the state of California. And so what we're really doing now is expanding or considering expanding, I say we, what you, the task force, are doing is considering expanding the scope of who can participate partly in the delivery of legal service, offering 
advice, as Alan got some advice one day that was very helpful to him by someone who was not authorized to practice law, and considering whether other people can offer capital to the enterprise of legal service delivery because there is some thought, and I think correctly so, that it, it hampers the ability of firms to deliver legal service, especially to individuals, especially to people with lower economic value issues, uh, to not have outside capital as part of their business model. So I think I'd like to transition the discussion into maybe consolidating a couple of subparts. So so far we've talked about the unpracticed or the unauthorized practice of law. We talked a, a little bit about um, closing the access to justice gap. But I think what I want to do is talk a little bit about making what attorneys do easier. So I know there was a little bit about fee sharing. There was some talk about advertising and solicitation. So I'd like to open up those topics. How can we make it easier for attorneys to generate more business? I'll jump in. Uh, we had a presentation yesterday that was a, very helpful, and it, it's based on some Clio data that talks about the amount of time attorneys are actually able to bill and collect versus how much time they spend doing so many other things in their practice. And the concept is that if we allow technology and others to assist in this process, it opens up more time for attorneys to actually use their best skills to uh, generate income and to serve their their clients. So I think technology serves a role in that, as do the uh, allied professionals we're talking about. Uh, also, you know, I, that, uh, I recently tweeted that um, an attorney approached 1400. We build legal services products, right? We build software for the legal industry. So an attorney had approached us and uh, asked for a quote on a technology that they wanted to build, which I thought was very meaningful. It would have a big impact on small pharmacies. Um, we provided a quote. Uh, they almost fell off their chair. Uh, and I explained technology is very expensive, but I actually believe in the product that she was trying to create. It got a lot of traction on Twitter um, when I made the comment, but my point is, um, you know, should we be allowed to, like, say, a, a, an organization like mine should be allowed to split fees with attorneys? I might go in on that law firm with that product. You know, I have to get my return as a business owner, obviously, um, and that can come in the form of uh, revenue share or uh, equity ownership in a product. Lawrence, I think, you know, you mentioned how can we make lives easier for attorneys, and that's where I started my journey in making law better. I was a, an attorney. Um, I got really frustrated. Folks would come in. You know, I was kind of a, a social justice crusader, I guess, and I was going to save the world. And then I realized that the way the tools that I had and the, the way that things were set up um, was not allowing me to deliver legal services at an affordable rate. I couldn't even afford myself at a small law firm. And so what then I became obsessed with was this idea that technology is going to really help here. And so I founded um, Ross uh, as this AI company, and I, I wanted to scale, um, and the team continues to do great stuff, scaling what attorneys can do. But what ended up coming and kind of becoming so um, kind of uh, more and more apparent as I went along that journey is that unless we go to a rethinking of the the regulations in place, there's only so much you can do with technology or advertising rules or fee splitting, et cetera. And I feel like those aspects of what we're doing as a task force are very exciting, um, but they're all kind of wrapped. And I think all of our suggestions are so interlinked with one another that you can't really think of that without some of that regulatory unlocking and, and rethinking. And so I don't want to pivot us back to that, but I do think it's just um, the way that things are, are currently being done. If it maintains this status quo, you're only going to be able to continue to deliver legal services to the 20% of people who can afford it rather than the 80% uh, of folks who desperately need it. 
I also think there's a lot of um, allied professionals that can make uh, a t- getting business for attorneys easier. You know, we discuss churches and how they're one place that a lot of people go when they have uh, problems. They don't know it's a legal problem. They know it's a problem. And so they go to someone they trust. And a church could have an attorney there where they fee share, right? But in a very positive way. Um, other community organizations, or the example that someone gave earlier, where a document preparer might recognize that there's a problem um, with the the client that's there and want to refer that to an attorney. Why can't they both profit from that one client? Why do they have to be afraid of that fee sharing when it's both in the interest? And in fact, by including that attorney, they're offering a better product because now they're actually bringing in someone with more expertise on an issue. So and a lot of that's one way that we're harming people and another way that an attorney will see a benefit um, because more work can come towards them. And just one more example is that realtors are a great referral partner for me because they are on the ground with individuals um, who buy homes and are spending a lot of money and should be putting them in a trust and uh, they're not even allowed to advise their clients as to how to take title and how to protect that asset. And that just blows my mind. So it, it, bringing a, a couple of things together, a lot of the challenge for uh, people in the law practice today is that we're dealing with business models that are outdated. And, and because of that, we incur cost that is higher than we need to incur. We have incentives for our people that are, that are contrary to the best interests of our client and that themselves contribute to higher cost and a, and a number of other problems. At the moment, the rules that, that, that govern the practice of law make it harder to change those models than they need to. And, and really the question that the task force has to grapple with and then all the other parties have to grapple with it before we get to final rules is how do you reconcile the competing considerations of wanting to protect the public and also wanting to create, enable business models that work better for the public. And I'm pretty confident that there will be um, sound answers as we go through this process and people think through these, uh, how these competing considerations work. I agree completely that we have to keep an eye on the public protection at all times as we go forward with this. And my view is that Perhaps we're not going to go as fast as many of the people at the table would like us to go. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we have to make modest inroads, and we're going to have to prove. It's not a question we're going to, where we can say, well, you have to prove where the harm's going to come. Otherwise, we're going to go full steam ahead. I think we have to show by implementing some modest changes, for example, the uh, alternatives that we have with Alternative 3.1 to modify Rule 5.4 to permit lawyers and other professionals to own a firm that provides legal services and perhaps law-related services as well. That's the first step. Then we can branch out from that and we can show, listen, the sky hasn't fallen. We can go forward We can still have a good legal profession. Lawyers will still do what they've done for centuries. They'll protect people, and they will advance their interests. Yeah. Well, to some extent, the sky has fallen already, and this is the point Ralph made this morning, because we lack data in this area, but the best data we have is that somewhere around 50 to 80% of people just don't have access to our legal system at all, right? And so, I I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting is to ask the panel, 
Uh, what kind of data do you have? There, there's so many anecdotes around this. There's this concern about, and, and people uh, talk about other providers who may have harmed a client and they have to take care of it. And of course, uh, I practice law. There were other lawyers who made mistakes and I had to clean up after that, right? But we're not going to solve this with these anecdotes. We need more data on this and measuring quality. Do, do you happen to have some data that you're able to turn to to help uh, inform the decision on this or... I think the the difficulty there uh, is that we are going into uncharted waters in some ways. So as a task force, we certainly look to other jurisdictions which made similar adjustments that have been proposed. Um, so you look to the UK. Uh, the, the The challenge becomes why the UK ended up um, changing their regulations wasn't necessarily with the same kind of um, jumpstart as as what you're seeing here in California, which is really a focus on access to justice. That was really from an anti-competition uh, um, standpoint there. And so the data that they tracked was not necessarily around increasing access to justice. Yeah. Well, and I think the UK is interesting. And, and because actually my understanding is there are some data to show there is that there are fewer complaints. So quality is, has, has gone up, yeah. right? And yeah, and, and that, there actually hasn't been more complaints against the non-legally uh, um, trained or lawyers than the, than the lawyers themselves. But I do think one thing that I'd add there, though, Dan, is you co we commonly hear in this kind of movement where folks say, well, um, point to how it's improved access to justice in those jurisdictions. Right. But I'd like to say, and I think that's what you're saying as well, pr point to those disaster stories. And when you look at that data in terms yeah. of complaints, right. you actually see a lot of really amazing things. We have things. so many people are going with nothing right now that we ought to be pushing the envelope just a little bit. Yeah, and, and I would say to, to, to that point, you know, as data is still being gathered, we have to set the baseline. We actually have to set the baseline to be able to collect the data, right? Yeah, like it's a very yeah. simple like tech concept yeah. where sure. um, we don't know what the customer, what the desired outcome <clears throat> is. Well, we know what the desired outcome is. We don't know what the hypothesis is going to lead to, right? And so we have to set those foundations now and collect that data. You know, one of, one of the things that we didn't talk about much today in the hearing is the cost of all legal service. So we see the impact of this, these outmoded models in, in the most stark way when we, can, we have this data about uh, individuals not having access to justice. But all the way through the system of legal service, where the law firms are incurring costs that's higher than it needs to be, and that ends up embedding into the fees being higher than they need to be. We've created careers in law that are less appealing than they used to be. And so we're seeing a decline in applications to law school, and we're seeing a decline in the quality of the applications to law school. We're seeing fewer people pass the pass the bar. I, I, I saw, heard one, the head of the uh, Connecticut uh, bar report at this conference at the ABA that there were only 63 people admitted to the practice of law in Connecticut last year, that dramatically down from from what it had been in years past. So there are lots of other consequences to having an outmoded set of, of business models at work in practicing law that could be addressed if we, if we liberalized those rules some. Going back to the data issue, uh, California is in the process of completing its first justice gap study, and we're supposed to have that done at the end of the year too, which will really show us in California where the, where the gaps are and what they need to be filled. It'll also set, uh, set a baseline going forward. And in the recommendations that we are proposing, we, we are suggesting that data has to be collected by these entities to determine whether or not these proposals actually impact the justice gap that we have in California. So it's all about the data. 
So we've, we've kind of been hinting at uh, one of the last road stops I want to make here. So we've kind of kicked it. I just don't want to make sure it wasn't lost in the ether because I like what I'm hearing about these business solutions to help law firms scale. And so that's a law firm as a solo or a small is really hard to scale. You know, you don't have enough people, you don't have enough division of labor. And so I wanted to get back, just kind of specifically call out the non-lawyer ownership of legal practices. And so I just wanted to, maybe we could architect it out a little bit. How, when in your proposals, exactly how did you want to move that forward? So what was suggested in terms of the allotment? Who gets to own a law firm and where does that investment come from? So um, the way that we laid it out was not necessarily as prescriptive or built out. We wanted to get to a point where we could send things out for public comment and then kind of go from there. But essentially what we laid out was that um, the uh, stipulations around UPL would be suspended um, for non-lawyers who would be able to practice certain aspects of uh, legal practice. Now, what's that going to be defined at as? That's to be de- determined. There were certain discussions around maybe that would stop at, you know, um, being able to enter into a, a, a courtroom setting and be able to kind of represent your client in that way. That is to be, de- to be determined. But as a task force, what we discussed was really around um, allowing it to occur and then gaining these kind of public commentary and gaining this discussion so that we can then start to formulate what it looks like. Yeah, on uh, our subcommittee uh, specifically, we were talking about um, uh, ownership in terms of percentages, uh, and there was uh, much spirited debate uh, with uh, Professor Moore on one end and and myself and uh, a few others on another end. Um, but I, 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 you know, where what we concluded at some point was, um, you know, the the ownership, like ownership of a law firm, um, should be at least fifty uh, fifty. Um, so. Yesterday, Jillian Hadfield spoke to us, and I really liked the way that she framed an issue that we had many discussions about, and that's the need to untangle the rules that protect the consumer from the rules that control our finances. And so when we go back into our meetings in October, now that we've hashed out a lot of this other stuff, I think we're going to be able to focus better on how to really pull apart those rules, and then then we can look at what controls need to be put in place um, when people are fee sharing, and do we care who shares fees so long as they're all subject to the same protectionist rules? So, so the issue, as someone who's run a law firm, the issue here is how may a law firm raise capital? That's what we're talking about. There, there will be an, a consequence of raising capital in different ways. That someone, in addition to the partners in the law firm or the other other people providing legal service, will benefit from the outcome of the of the institution. But the real action item is raising capital to enable the firm to make investments, do things that are necessary to build out to serve the client base. It's it's really important to keep that in mind because many people, when they hear about law firms being able to raise money this with from outside think instantly about law firms listing themselves publicly uh, on some stock exchange, which rarely happens in the whole world, even though it's permitted. But it, it's not really what is it, is the objective of the change in the rules. Just to respond to that, um, you said that we're talking about raising capital. You know, we did also talk about investments. Should we separate investments? But, you know, having capital is more than than the dollars in the bank. Um, it's also the uh, the sweat equity and the work that people do. It's the capital to have the individual who can do the marketing and run the business while the attorney does the lawyering. 
Yeah, and I, I just want to add to that. Actually, um, you know, it's, it's not just about the capital; it's about um, having an allied partner that could run the operations, run all the other functions of the business. So that way, the lawyer can really excel at what they do best, right? Because I would imagine, I've never run a law firm, but I would imagine, just like any other business, you know, it's really hard, right? Like, you don't want to have to be the bookkeeper. You don't want to have to be the chief customer service uh, officer and uh, the chief revenue officer and all those different roles. I, I think allowing um, co-ownership um, frees up that opportunity to, to develop more excellence. Right. Those, those are really important points, and those are day-to-day -day real issues in running a law firm. You have people playing these very important roles in addition to practicing law, and they don't share in the outcome, the economic outcome of the enterprise. Now, those are very important points. Okay. All this talk of capital reminds me of a professor in law school who once told me he was supervising my analytical writing, which was a graduation requirement. He looked and he said, Moore, you have a capitalization problem. And I thought to myself, yeah, I'm in debt right now. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. But what he was referring to is I didn't know how which words I was supposed to be capitalizing in my paper. But uh, to get back on track, when I hear capital and capitalization, and I think it's true of a lot of lawyers, and I think we need to start assuring lawyers, they think these are the large law firms, big law that is going out to get capital to represent make their pitches, represent in those major lawsuits, or they may be the ones who are like the major uh, uh, products liability uh, cases and so forth They're trying to get capitalization for that. What I think we're talking about here at the table is something else differently. We're talking about uh, trying to increase the ability of the people lawyers, the lawyers who represent people, uh, to, more, to more effectively represent uh, their clients. And I think we really need to change some of the terminology we're using, uh, or at least explain it in a little bit more depth as we go forward. And that might go a long way in assuaging some of the concerns we've seen in the written comments that have been submitted to the State Bar. Yeah, I, I think as as a as an observer, as a member of the California State Bar, that this kind of clarity is really important to be very clear with the public what the objectives of this task force are. And so, this is a, a very important example. This is not about raising capital for mega firms and and and, and on. Um, it is about enabling firms that are handicapped, hindered, held back by uh, not having access to capital. It, it, the more the public, I think, understands what you're trying to do, then and they're gonna, the substance is what's going to matter. But, it, but the more they understand what you're trying to do, the more, the more sympathetic I think they will be to the effort. Yeah, and, then, and going back to the terminology point, this is a really great leadership opportunity across the country to, to establish the, the language to, uh, and there are a lot of states looking to you, and you heard that during the, during the comments today. And for our, our listeners' benefit, I wonder if you could tell us kind of, we know there's some things happening in Utah, Arizona, for example. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of the landscape? Is any, and, and, are, and is there some discussion going on with any of those other jurisdictions as you go through this process? Well, I think I, I've been really lucky to be connected to a lot of the different teams and folks who are working. Uh, you, you, you take uh, Arizona, uh, Utah, um, and there's also some other efforts underway in states like Florida coming up uh, as well. I think um, part of what we're seeing are um, 
a lot of discussion around removal of Rule 5.4 completely. That's kind of formed a lot of the discussions in those states. Um, but I do think right now we're all bubbling at this kind of same level at the forefront and we're all at similar stages. And I do think um, different organizations are already moving to kind of ensure that there's conversation between those different groups because, uh, you know, the way that we are seeing things, people are seeing that law, um, people don't know they have legal issues. So as I said, law is a marketing problem, law is a capitalization problem. And because of that, we have a legal uh, basic uh, access to justice crisis uh, as a result of that. I also want to point out that many of the individuals on our task force are actually from other states, and so they're able to bring our knowledge yeah. uh, directly to the task force, and also many of the presenters have been from other states and have been working on other projects, so we've had a lot of input um, about what other jurisdictions are doing. All right, so we're running a, a little short on time here, and I wanted to close on a note of levity. So it was great uh, being at the public hearing today. I kept a, an informal tab on the uh, pros, cons, the yays, nays, the uh, no comments and, and whatnot. So I counted 10 pros, so 10 people that were for uh, for these proposals. I counted five nays, there was one no comment, and there were four people I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> so, But what I wanted to do is just close on this note. Wait, wait, um, wait, wait. Lawrence, they had no idea what they were talking about, or you had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> it may, it may have been a little of both. I don't know. I'm not going to comment. But uh, but anyway, what I wanted to do is just kind of close on a fun note. I, I know everybody here is pro-proposal, but I wanted to uh, close on a fun note. I know you all had an opportunity to look at some of the uh, the nay comments. So I was wondering if we could just leave one fun nay comment for each person, like some of the fun, outstanding ones that you saw that were against it, just for fun, just to have a little uh, little moment of levity here. So why don't I turn to Tara Bird first? You should be ashamed of yourself. That was the comment, or you, is that directed at me? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kevin. I'll go for low-hanging fruit. What are you people, nuts? That's <laughs> <laughs> Andrew. This is my favorite. There is no place for technology in law. Oh, wow. All right, Joanna. Um, given that I'm on the board of trustees, my favorite had to do with the real estate advice we were given on how you know the state bar should be managing its real estate. Of course, I don't know how that was related, but apparently it was very important to that person. Dan? Yeah, well, I'll actually take a different track with that, and I'll just say that I appreciate this process, which allows people to get involved. And, and I'm harder on lawyers, just as, as, as anyone, but then when the technologists complain sometimes about lawyers not adopting things, I say, you've got an engagement problem, not an adoption problem. You need to engage people early. <clears throat> Same thing with these sorts of efforts. We have to have empathy for people. We need to understand where they're coming from, and we really need to build a coalition of people who can help us move the profession forward. Alan, fun, nay comment. I want a refund of all my bar dues with uh, three exclamation points, all caps. <laughs> so, so, so the members of the task force have the advantage of drawing on written comments as well as ones today. I actually was – I'm more in Dan's camp on this as to the, today's oral uh, comments. I was surprised at how constructive the meeting was throughout. I kind of expected that there'd be more disparity, this is great or this is crazy or something like that, and there wasn't much of that. And, and so it felt, as a, as a member of the state bar and as a citizen, it felt like a constructive exercise. Mm -hmm. and, and a number of the people who rose to, to uh, articulate concerns I thought had pretty constructive suggestions, yeah. ways that things might be improved, things that maybe you didn't think about. And, and it, it just felt constructive as though we're in an exercise that's like it's supposed to be. Yeah. Furthering what Ralph said, I, I hope that people following this recognize that their feedback is important, but also we will listen all the much more if they do tell us 
what even 5% they're okay with, right? If they don't like 95%, but they don't tell us what piece of it they like or what their alternative ideas are, we can't actually learn from it. So I do hope that the people continue to give us comments and that they do try and make it as constructive as possible so that we can uh, digest all that information and effectuate the right change. All right. Well, before we close it out, I want to get contact information from everybody who feels they want to leave contact information just in case some of our listeners want to reach out. So in an effort to make this extra confusing, I'm going to turn not to Tara Bird this time. I'm going to go to Ralph Baxter. So you can reach me at Ralph at RalphBaxter.com. Alan. Uh, www.one-400.com. Dan. Dan Lena on Twitter. Joanna. Joanna.Mendoza at calbar.ca.gov. Andrew. At Andrew on Twitter, and that links right to my ICQ and MySpace as well. K-M-O-H-R at WSULaw.edu. Don't contact me on Twitter. Last, (laughs) Last but certainly, certainly not least, Tara Bird. T-Bird at TaraBird.com and T-BirdLaw on Twitter. All right. Well, thank you all for being part of this gigantic panel. I know it's late in the day. It's super hot in here, by the way, so I don't know what's going on. And I'm getting hangry. Uh-oh. <laughs> so we're going to close it there, but I want to thank our listeners before we tune out here, because without you, we wouldn't have a show, and that would be no fun. So if you like what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.